The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this morning comes from Revelation 3, 14 through 22. To the church in Laodicea. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. How are we doing this morning? That's good. Uh, If you haven't met before, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. I know I said Romans like 70 times last week. I'm so sorry. Uh, Revelation chapter 3. We're going to be looking at 14 through 22. I encourage you, if you don't have a Bible, to use one of those on the rows. There's something about just having an hour and a half space in our lives once a week to not be looking at our phones. So let me just encourage you. It's not law. You're not in trouble, anything like that. Just think it's helpful. We're embodied beings. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we dive into the word together. Lord, as we come to you this morning, we want to come as you tell us to, which is with humble, open, repentant hearts. And yet there's so much in my own heart that is all of the opposites of those things. I'm not often humble as you call me to be. I'm often full of arrogance and pride. I'm not open as you call me to be. I'm often closed to you with excuses or caveats or noise, distraction. And yet you, when you invite me to repentance, I'm self-righteous and self-justifying. So Lord, I pray this morning you would do what only you can do, which is capture our hearts with your love. Open our eyes to see your word. Open our hearts to hear your voice. We need you, Lord. Do what you have been doing for so many generations. Take your word by the power of your spirit and get it into our lives such that we are changed. That is the power of the next 30 minutes. Not in anything I have to say, not in any winsome arguments or illustrations, in your word, in your truth that stands over us and over time and through time and speaks right now to whatever we're going through. And so we trust that. We're ready to be changed. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. 
Have you ever had a conversation with someone who you knew was just not listening? Like one of those conversations where you just, it would work better if I had a different microphone, but you were just like, tap, tap, is this thing on, right? Like it's just, it just feels like you're not hearing what I'm saying. Maybe you're at a party and you meet someone new and it's like, I just can't get your eye contact because you're scanning the room looking for anybody else to talk to besides me. Or maybe you're having coffee with a friend and they've had an unusually bad day. And so you're asking questions and you're trying to engage them in conversation. And yet all you're getting back is yes, no, yes, no. Or maybe you've been this person, you're on that first date and 10 minutes in, you're like, this is not it. (laughs) And so you're like, okay, how do I not be mean, but also how do I not engage too much to where they don't get the wrong idea that there's going to be a second date after this one? Or maybe you're trying to talk to your spouse and you're like half listening, half engaging, half trying to make sure your kids aren't tearing up the house apart or attacking each other, hypothetically, completely hypothetical. I've learned recently about myself that I am a rich and personable combination of both internal processor and a bit scatterbrained. So talking to me, I'm usually the receiving end of this feedback. I was talking to Garrison, our other pastor this week, and he was like, do you know it takes me at least three or four tries on average to get through a story when we're talking? I'm often the recipient of my wife's patience where she says in the middle of a conversation, did you hear what I just said? Are you listening to me? We've come, as Morgan reminded us earlier, to the end of our series on these letters from Jesus to the seven churches in Revelation. We've been exploring these letters, seeing how each one asks a sort of gut check question for these churches and for us. Questions like, have you abandoned your love for Christ? Are you tolerating sin? Are you compromising with false teaching? Are you willing to join God in advancing his kingdom, even if it leads to suffering, but today, the final letter to the church in Laodicea is sort of the question underneath all of the other questions. So here's God saying to this church and to us, hey, are you listening to me? It's the question behind all of the other questions. Did you hear anything that I've been saying? Have you been leaning in at all to these letters? Do you have ears to hear and hearts that are open to my corrective work in your life? And that is such a good question to end our series on because the question is never in the Christian life, is Jesus speaking to us? It's never the question. The question is always, are we listening? Do we have ears to hear what, in fact, he is saying? And so that's where we're headed today. But before we get into the letter to Laodicea, let's first chat about the city of Laodicea, because this letter is full of metaphor and imagery. And so if you don't understand the backstory of Laodicea, you're not going mi- to miss what Jesus is saying. So stick with me here. So as you can see on the map behind me, Laodicea is sort of separated from the rest of the cities down there in the south. It's located in what was known as the Lycus Valley, right next to two other cities known as Hierapolis and Colossae. If you were to go visit today what is uh, the, the, an ancient Laodicea, you would find ruins that would look something like this. Now, Laodicea in the first century was known for quite a lot of things, but I just want to talk about four because they're going to come up in the letter. The first thing that Laodicea was known for is their clothing. The city of Laodicea was the leading manufacturer and trader of black wool in the ancient world. People would travel from all over the known world to buy clothes made out of this specific material and color. The second thing Laodicea was known for was their medical school. 
The doctors and teachers at this school had developed what came to be known as the Phrygian powder. It was a paste-like substance made from a specific mineral found near the city that was used to treat various eye conditions. The third thing that Laodicea was known for was their wealth. Not unlike the city we, li we live in today, they were a banking epicenter. They were home to some of the leading banks in the world at that time. They were full of riches and prosperity. In fact, they were so wealthy that similar to most of the other cities, they also experienced an earthquake in the first century. AD 60, there was a massive earthquake. But unlike the rest of the cities we've looked at, they didn't need any help from Rome to rebuild. They were like, no thanks, Rome. We've got it. We've got enough to, to take care of our needs, to rebuild as a city. They were wealthy. Fourth thing you have to know about Laodicea is that they were notorious for their water supply, or rather, lack thereof. So Laodicea, as a, as a city, had no water supply of its own. They were reliant on two different sources from those two neighboring cities. So Hierapolis was known for their famous hot springs that were full of minerals, and that were, people would travel from all around to go bathe in their hot springs because of the healing properties on various ailments. Colossae, on the other hand, was up in the mountains, and so they were known for having cold, refreshing drinking water from the mountain springs. The problem was that because Laodicea had no water source of its own, it would pull together the warm water from Heriopolis and the cold water from Colossae, and it would mix together into their notoriously bad piping system. And by the time it got to their city, it would be lukewarm, and it would make people sick to the point of vomiting. So stylish clothes... Eye doctors, big banks, bad water. That's Laodicea. Tracking? All of that is going to come up in the letter from Jesus. So let's dive into it together. We'll start in verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Verse 15, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Literal translation, I will violently vomit you up. Jesus in these letters is so great. Jesus, the faithful and true witness, who knows all things, who does not lie, knows the truth about Laodicea, and he tells them that truth. You're not hot, you're not cold, you're lukewarm, and it's making me want to vomit. Now, let's get really clear here on what Jesus is saying and not saying to these churches. So if you grew up in church, maybe you've heard these verses before. They are favorites for youth group retreats, right? Like last Saturday night of youth group retreat, if you're not familiar, this is church culture that you're luckily missed out on. Saturday night is known as cry night, and it's the night where you preach on a passage like Revelation 3, and you yell at 15-year-old teenagers about not being on fire for Jesus, and then everybody cries and repents and gets saved for like the 15th time. Anybody else? Maybe you've never heard these words before, and you're like, wait a minute, did Jesus say he's going to vomit people? Like, what is happening in this passage? Well, here's how folks tend to read this letter. Jesus says it's better to be cold than lukewarm. He would rather you then not be a Christian than be a lukewarm Christian, so stop being apathetic and get on fire for Jesus. Here's the problem with that. It's not what Jesus is actually saying in the text. Let me show you this. Here's why I would argue that's the case. The reason why I don't think Jesus is saying that is first, because he's not talking about emotions and the heart. Remember how he starts the letter. I know your what? Works. 
It's the same way he starts the letter to Ephesus. Ephesus, the church that has abandoned their love for Jesus, right? Jesus says, I know your works, and then he commends their works, and then he corrects their heart. He doesn't do that with the church at Laodicea. He corrects their works. He says, your works are why I know you're lukewarm. His condemnation is about their works, much less to do about their passion or their hearts, and much more to do about how they are living. The second reason why I think that this is not what Jesus is saying is because of the imagery of Laodicea's water supply. So think about both the hot water and cold water from the neighboring cities are both good and beneficial. The hot water from Heriopolis brings healing to ailments and illnesses and pain. The cold water from Colossae brings refreshment and nourishment to those who are thirsty. But by the time they reach Laodicea, it's lukewarm, polluted, and causing people to vomit. And so when Jesus says, would that you were either cold or hot, he's not saying get off the fence. He's not saying be either on fire for me or get out. He's saying, I wish your works made you spiritually beneficial to the world around you. He's saying, I wish you brought life instead of death. I wish you brought spiritual vitality to others instead of making them sick. It would be good for you to be like the hot water and provide healing to those who are spiritually sick. It'd be good for you to be like cold water and bring refreshment to those who are spiritually thirsty, but you're not spiritually beneficial to anyone. And that's why they are making Jesus Sick. And so this is not a statement about half-hearted faith. It's a statement about their inability to offer spiritual help or life to one another or the world. In other words, it's not so much that they're apathetic about their moods as they are apathetic in their deeds. They're lazy. They're not spiritually beneficial to the spiritually needy in their city. Theologian Colin Hemer says it this way, the church at Laodicea was judged for its ineffectiveness rather than its half-heartedness, for the barrenness of its works rather than its spiritual temperature. But Jesus doesn't just stop there. Because here's what you have to know about living a lukewarm life. It's a symptom, not the root. There's a deeper issue going on that's leading to their lukewarmness. We see what that is in verse 17. Jesus says, for, because, here's why you're lukewarm. Here's why you're spiritually gross. Here's why you're making me sick. You say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. So the core problem with Laodicea is not some false teaching making its way into the church. It's not some big sexual immorality scandal from the teachings of Jezebel like we've seen in past letters. It's not persecution from the Romans. The core problem with Laodicea is their pride, their arrogance, their self-reliance. Laodicea is the lukewarm church because Laodicea is the self-reliant church well, we're just fine by ourselves. We need nothing and no one. What's the subtext underneath that phrase? We need nothing and no one, including who? God, right? This is the Laodiceans, right? Banking capital of the ancient world, global leader in trade, medical advancement sought after far and wide. They have everything they could ever want. They've got it made. They're good. And it's rotting out from the inside their life with God. Jesus says to the church in Laodicea, do you want to know why you're not spiritually beneficial to anyone around you? Do you want to know why you don't have a vibrant and living and life-giving relationship with me? Here's why. Because your riches and possessions and comforts in life have tricked you into thinking you're doing just fine without me. They are so prosperous, they think. What need do we have for God anymore? 
This is not the first time Jesus gives this warning in the scripture. So I don't have it on the screen. You're just going to have to turn with me. Go back over to Luke chapter 18. Go a little bit to the left. You're going to want to go. We're going to be there for a minute. Luke chapter 18. There's a, a famous story that Jesus tells in the middle of a lot of his teaching in Luke about the kingdom of God. And, and you've probably heard or may have heard this story before in Luke 18 about a man that's come to be called throughout history as the rich young ruler. And in Luke chapter 18, Jesus, uh, the story happens this way. I'm just going to read it for you. Luke chapter 18, verse 18. This is another time in the scriptures Jesus gives a warning about what riches and prosperity and flourishing can do to our life with God. Luke 18, 18. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. He's a little bit Southern. All these. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Notice what happens, though. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, a.k.a. impossible, than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. He says it's downright impossible that those who have wealth can enter into the kingdom because of what that does to their souls. Verse 26, those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Now, that text is maybe semi-familiar to us, right? The rich young ruler, he comes to Jesus, I want to follow you. And Jesus is like, nope, go sell all you have. And he goes away sad because he's rich. But what I just noticed for the first time this week that's been blowing my mind is the context of Luke 18 in this story. Look right up above in the passage before that. Luke 18, 15. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But Jesus called to them, to him saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Then skip down to after the rich young ruler, verse 35, the next interaction that Jesus is going to have. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging, Luke 18, 36. And hearing a crowd going by him, he inquired by what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Skip to verse 42. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. Notice the juxtaposition of Luke. Luke 18, 18, it's hard for the rich to enter into the kingdom of God. But do you know who gets welcome into the kingdom of God? Those who are like children and the poor blind beggar. What is Jesus doing in that contrast? He's saying to such the kingdom of God belongs, those who realize how truly needy they actually are. And that's why prospering and flourishing and riches are so dangerous to the human soul because they lull us into thinking, I am good without God. And Jesus says, the very people not welcome in the kingdom of God are those who think they don't need it. 
This is his constant refrain throughout the Gospels. Those who know their need, their physical need, their spiritual need, their relational need, whatever the case may be, those who are deeply aware of their brokenness are the ones open to the work and message of Christ. And those who think they're doing awesome, the rich, the Pharisees, they are the ones who miss the miracles of Christ. But I've noticed this, at least in my own life, that I tend to be much more worried about being needy than I am about being prosperous. Tracking with me, just me? I am much more concerned about the state of my soul when I'm walking through suffering than I'm when I'm walking through flourishing. So when I walk through a season of suffering, I'm like, all right, I'm not, I don't want to doubt God. Like, I want to stay close to him. And so I need to, loop in, I need to loop in community, and I need to pray, and I need some extra space for silence and solitude. I'm going to fight for the Sabbath. Like, I'm going to keep watch over my soul because I'm walking through a season of suffering, and I'm worried about what that will do to my relationship with God. But when things are good not just financially good, but relationally good, spiritually good. Things are good at the church. Things are good in my marriage. Things are good with my kids. And you know what I can do? I can get to Saturday night, and I can sit down to put the final touches on the sermon, and I can have this conviction from the Lord. Is this the first time I've prayed this week? Anybody else notice that? Like when you're walking through it, when you're going through it, it's like I've never prayed more in my life. And in the times where everything seems awesome, it's like, have I even thought about God besides on Sunday morning? Prospering, flourishing in every way, shape, and form, financially, relationally, physically, whatever the case may be, it's dangerous to the human soul. I love this from Agur, one of the guys who writes Proverbs, Proverbs 30, verses 7 through 9, says it this way. He says, two things I ask of you, Lord, deny them not to me before I die. One, remove from me falsehood and lying. That's just a good thing to pray. Two, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. When's the last time you prayed, Lord, don't give me too much? because I'm nervous about what too much is going to do to my heart. When's the last time you pray, not for the guy in your group who's going through it and struggling, and you're like, I'll pray for you, that seems really hard, but for the guy that's doing really well. I'm also going to pray for you, because I'm a little bit nervous about what this is going to do to your soul. It's dangerous. The Laodiceans think they're doing just great, but it's killing their life with God, and it's a false reality. Keep reading in verse 17. Go back to Revelation 3. For you say... I'm rich. I've prospered. I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus says you think you're doing great. You're puffed up with pride and self-reliance, and yet that's not true at all. You've built this self-reliance life without realizing that you are much more broken than you realize. But he doesn't leave it there, right? If the letter stopped there, it'd be a really depressing letter. Like, you think you're doing awesome? You're not. All right, see you next Christmas. Like, that's not... How it goes, look at verse 18. I counsel you then to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. All right, let's just look at this thread real quick of what Jesus is doing. He says, first, you think you're rich. We're the Laodiceans. We've got the banks, we've got the wealth, we're good. Here's the reality, you're poor, so I counsel you, buy from me true and lasting gold, 
riches beyond what you can imagine. These riches he's talking about is the inheritance that is promised to all who trust in Jesus, right? He's not saying, hey, next week, I'm going to give you like real gold. You've got fake gold. No, he's saying in the future, when I return, I'm giving you gold that will never perish, life forever with God. And he says, buy this from me, which is scriptural language for put your trust and faith and surrender in me. And this is what I will give you in return. So you think you're rich, you're actually poor. I've got gold and a lasting inheritance forever. Look at the second thing he says. You think you've got awesome clothes. Black wool, everyone's traveling to you to get these garments, but in reality, you're naked. Nakedness in the scriptures was a symbol of judgment and humiliation, of shame. And yet Jesus says, I offer you white gowns. We said last week that white gowns are a symbol of purity and holiness. And so even though right now they're marked by spiritual shame, trying to puff themselves up in self-reliance, Jesus says, I offer you something better. I offer you the righteousness of Christ on your behalf, given to you freely by grace. This is third, you think you've got the special eye powder. You think you've got the salve and the ointment that everybody travels around to get so they can see, but in reality, you are the one who are blind to your spiritual depravity and decay. But here's the good news. I offer you true spiritual salve, true spiritual ointment that you may see both the reality of your brokenness and the reality of God's kindness and glory. Church, do you see the gospel all over this letter to Laodicea? It's so much more than just, hey, stop being apathetic and get on fire for Jesus. The gospel is in these nine verses. This is the story of every single one of us who trust in Christ. Is it not? Like, this is your story. I think I'm doing awesome. I think I'm doing great. I think I've got it going on on my own. I think I'm good. Jesus shows up, and in his kindness, when I'm his enemy, when I don't want him, when I want nothing to do with him, when I think I'm totally good and fine on my own, he shows up and says, hey, sorry, you're not. And his love, he makes us see how broken and messed up we actually are. And then in his kindness offers to us in reality all the things we're striving for in our self-reliance on our own. Welcome, intimacy, belonging, forgiveness, mercy, life, a place forever in the kingdom of God. The story of the Laodiceans is the story of all of us who trust in Jesus. I think I'm awesome. Jesus shows me I'm not because he's kind and loving. And then I put my faith in him and receive everything I was looking for in the first place. That is how Christ works to save us. But church, that is also how Christ works to sanctify us. That is how we enter into the Christian life, but it's also how we make progress in the Christian life. Look at verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Church, the entrance into the Christian life is found in giving up our self-reliance, acknowledging our sinfulness and weakness and brokenness and throwing ourselves on the mercy and grace of God. But progress in the Christian life is found in the exact same thing, giving up our self-reliance, acknowledging our sinfulness, weakness, and brokenness, and throwing ourselves on the mercy and grace of God. Because what happens, and if you've been following Jesus for any length of time, you know this, is that we're captured by his grace, and then a little bit over time, we start relying on ourselves again. A little bit over time, we start thinking, I got this Christian thing kind of figured out. And I've just, now I'm back to being self-reliant. I've just got that little bit of like spiritual dust on it, so it sounds a little better. 
where I can kind of manage life on my own. I can manage spirituality on my own. I can manage following Jesus on my own. And Jesus says, no, those whom I love, I continually, not one time, I continually reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. That's how we enter into the Christian life. That's how we make progress in the Christian life. But here's the kicker. Here's where I wanted us to get to from the beginning. Here's the key. Jesus is constantly doing that. Are we willing to listen? He loves you, and we know this, right? Good fathers will not let their children just go about doing whatever they want to do, right? If you see a dad who is not willing to step in and discipline his kids, that's a bad, unloving father who is raising a kid who is going to turn out to have no friends in the future. Nobody else? Amen? Okay, cool. Good, loving parents discipline their kids, shape them into responsible, kind humans. God is the same way. And so the question that we have to ask is that if he's moving towards his people in loving discipline and correction, are we willing to listen? That's the question underneath all of the other questions. It's simply this. Are you listening to the corrective and loving discipline of Jesus? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. Am I listening to the corrective and loving discipline of Jesus? Because he's doing the work. Are we willing to open our hearts and ears to him? Because here's what happens. Look at verse 20. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. We've talked a lot about how rich the city of Laodicea was at the time. But one of the difficulties that came with them being so wealthy was their relationship to Rome. Rome didn't trust them. They were worried about them because Laodicea didn't need the Romans like the rest of the cities needed the Romans. And so one of the ways the Romans tried to exercise power over Laodicea is a law that simply said, if a Roman soldier comes to your house They can force their way in, and you are required to house them, feed them, and clothe them under the penalty of death if you refuse. You have to let them in. You have to take them in. If they knock, they're going to force their way in. You have to welcome them. And here comes Jesus in this letter saying, I am not like the Romans. Yes, I discipline those I love. Yes, I speak words of reproof and correction, but I will not force my way in. Instead, I stand at the door and knock hey, don't abandon your love for me. Hey, don't be afraid to suffer for my name. Hey, I know it's a little sin, don't compromise. Hey, don't give in to the lie of tolerance. Stand up against false teaching. Hey, don't stay spiritually dead. Don't neglect my kingdom mission. I'm standing at the door and knocking. Will you let me in. And I know for so many of us, at a core of our hearts, we want to say yes. Like there's levels to it in our souls, right? Like there's a part of me that's like, I don't want to say yes to that. That sounds dangerous. That sounds scary. That sounds like self-denial. That sounds difficult and painful. I don't want to say yes, but I think there's so many of us who there's a deeper level even than that by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit that would say, yes, I want that. I want God to come and make his home with me. I don't want to eat with him and he with me. I want intimacy with him to do all of the reproving and correcting and disciplining he needs to do. If that's your core level desire, here's the key. It's not a formula, it's not an incantation, it's just the invitation of Revelation 3, verse 20. It's very simple. God comes 
where he's wanted. If you want to know about the Christian life, how do I grow in intimacy with God? How do I grow in relationship with him where he loves me and I love him? What's the key? What's the secret? It's wondrously simple and wondrously difficult. God comes where he's wanted. Hunger, humility, openness. God comes where he's wanted. James 4 promises, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. He's always speaking words of discipline, correction, reprove out of love, with an invitation to open the door, to be zealous and to repent. Are we willing to listen? Because God comes where he's wanted. As we close, I want to talk about a, a practice. So if, you've, if you're relatively new around here, um, we value the idea of um, creating habits out of the spiritual life. So much of modern American Christianity is built on thoughts, not on deeds. And yet James says that that is worthless faith. And so we want to be a people who put our faith into practice. And so I thought it'd be fitting just to spend our last couple of minutes before we close giving you a practice to help create space in your life for what hopefully God has been doing over the past few weeks of this series. And it's a, a practice that Christians have been doing for several hundred years now. It was started by a guy named Ignatius of Loyola. He was a a guy in the 1500s, he founded uh, what's now today known as the Jesuit movement, and he talked about this practice that Christians can do in some repetitious form, whether that be daily or weekly, to open our hearts up before the Lord. And the practice is called the prayer of examine. Prayer of examine is something that Christians do uh, either on a daily basis. Some folks pray this every single night. Other folks do the prayer of examine on more of a weekly basis or monthly basis or every so often. But it's a spiritual practice, which is just something we do to open up space for God to do what only he can do. And that's what it means to be a spiritual practice. And it's a chance for us to open up our hearts. So if God's been speaking during this series and you're like, I don't want him to stop speaking. I don't want him to stop uh, shaping me and molding me and correcting me and all of the beautifully difficult ways, then this is a practice that I would encourage you, invite you to step in on. Uh, I heard someone quote their Peloton uh, instructor this past week, and I loved it. Uh, he said, his Peloton instructor always says, we give recommendations, you make decisions. So this is that for you. I liked it. You don't have to like it. <laughs> Here's what it means to do the prayer of examine. Number one, we become aware of God's presence. So this is at the end of the day, you find a quiet place, a silent place. This can be uh, the floor of your bedroom. This can be uh, an armchair in the living room. This can be your kitchen table, just somewhere where you're undisturbed. And you just sit and you do what we've been doing every gathering over the past seven weeks. You just take a moment to be silent before the Lord. If you're a follower of Jesus, he's in you. The, the Holy Spirit is, has filled you. You are empowered by his presence. And so you just take a moment to Breathe in reminders of his presence and breathe out your anxieties, your worries, your to-do list, your cares, the noise and hustle of the world. Second thing you do is you review your day with gratitude. You should take a moment to reflect. What did I live today and how do I thank God for it? God, thank you for that conversation with my coworker. Or thank you for those few minutes with my kids before work or school. Lord, thank you for that cheeseburger at lunch. Thank you for that television show we watched a few minutes ago. Thank you for your presence with me. Thank you for that time in your word, whatever it may be. Third is you review your day with repentance. So you go back over your day or your week or your month, and instead of giving thanks for all the good gifts, you 
confess and you own and you acknowledge the ways that you have lived outside of God's design. Lord, I'm sorry for that snapping remark I made to my spouse. Lord, I'm sorry for my laziness at work. Lord, I'm sorry for my neglect of prayer. Lord, I'm sorry for the way that I've turned my face from the poor, whatever it may be. Then here's the key. You don't want to stop at three. If you stop at three, you're just repeating back the things you did that day that were outside of God's design. So you have to do step four, which is ask for forgiveness and healing. Lord, I'm acknowledging these things, but I'm not just acknowledging. I'm not just recounting them to you. You already know them. I'm telling them to you to then ask for you to forgive me. We're doing this right now with our three-year-old, right? When she pushes her sister or hits her sister or hugs her sister too violently, we're always like, what did you do? And she says, I was not gentle with my sister. And we don't stop there. We say, okay, now what do you have to do? I have to go apologize. I have to say I'm sorry. And that's step four. All right, Lord, I'm not just acknowledging the ways I've lived outside of your design, thought outside your design, loved outside your design but I'm also giving them to you and I'm asking for your forgiveness. I'm receiving your healing. I'm receiving, receiving your pardon. And then number five is ask for renewed strength for tomorrow. Ask for renewed strength for tomorrow. Lord willing, he will give you another day and you'll wake up the next day and you'll have another day to walk with him in his presence. So you ask him, Lord, would you help me follow you tomorrow? Would you give me strength for everything you have in front of me? Come aware of God's presence, review your day with gratitude, review your day with repentance, ask for forgiveness and healing, and ask him for renewed strength for tomorrow. This is a practice I would encourage you to, to try out, to make it a part of your daily routine, your weekly routine, to create space in your life for Jesus to do what he wants to do. Stand at the door, knock, and bring love, reprove, and discipline to those he loves as his children. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. And we need you, and we ask your hand over us, Lord. We know that you want to speak, and you want to move, and you want to care for us, and you want to bring to your love children that you love reprove and discipline and correction. So we receive all of it, even though it might be hard for us to hear, hard for us to receive. Lord, we want to be a church that is open and soft to you. Lord, and so I pray this week and even today as we step into our lives, for some of us, we step into the practice of examining prayer, Lord, as we open up our hearts to you, Lord, that we would do that, doing what we can do to create space for you to do what only you can do, which is to speak to us, to shape us, to mold us, convict us, remind us of the depth of your forgiveness that never runs out because of the work of Jesus. Speak over us your love that's available to us, not because we're awesome, because of Christ in our place. We love you and we need you. Probably sings in Christ's name. Amen.